1832, a group of men gathered together in Cocospera, Sonora, at the home of Father Rafael Diaz. Diaz, who had been forced to leave San Javier del Bac a few years earlier, was joined by Lieutenant Colonel Ignacio Elias Gonzalez, the former commanding officer at Tubac. Elias Gonzalez had ridden in from his home in Arispe in order to chair the meeting currently underway. The assembly was comprised of men hailing from towns across the Pimaria Alta that were now threatened by a resurgence of Apache attacks. Together, they formed a new civilian militia dubbed La Seccion Patriotica, or the Patriotic Section. It was an admission that something more needed to be done to protect those few brave souls that called the area home. Because two things have been made clear in recent years. First, the Apache threat was growing by the day. And second, the government, and by extension the army, was too fractured too distracted, and too broke to do anything about it. In a few years, with the benefit of hindsight, a third thing would become clear. It was only going to get worse from there. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you're listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 17, Neither a Horse Nor Gun. You might remember from the past couple episodes that, following the adoption of the Mexican Constitution of 1824, Sonora and Sinaloa were combined into what was known as the State of the West, or El Estado de Occidente. You might also remember that a lot of people didn't really like this decision at all, and that fighting started immediately to separate the two. The two sides, those for keeping Occidente one state, and those who wanted Sonora to be its own thing, will slug it out in political circles for years. The animosity would be temporarily dropped during small crises, such as the Yaqui Rebellion in southern Sonora that I mentioned briefly in last week's episode. But in 1829, the separatists managed to get a hold of some ears down in Mexico City and persuaded the National Congress to recall the current governor, who was one of the few adamant supporters of non-division left standing. In October 1830, the state legislature of Occidente let it be known that by March of the next year, the division of Sonora from Sinaloa would be complete. Almost immediately, however, more political wrangling happened among the residents of Sonora. This controversy was over where the capital of the new state should be located. State leaders, headed by provisional governor Leonardo Escalante, preferred a new location at Hermosillo. It was the fastest-growing town in the new state, not to mention Escalante's hometown. But before the state constitution was even written or adopted, a petition went around to keep the capital at Arispe, despite the decline in the latter's economic and cultural importance. Leading this charge were various members of the powerful Elias Gonzalez family, including Simon, Sonora's commanding general, and his brother Jose Maria. The latter would solicit all the presidios, especially those at Tucson and Tubac, to support keeping the capital at Arispe. After all, it was closer, and that's where their orders had come from for the last half century. When the state legislature met at Hermosillo in April 1832, they were almost immediately greeted by this petition. Governor Escalante vehemently denounced the petition, but the legislature voted to move the capital back to Arispe in May. 
when that move did happen, the legislators were even escorted by 25 soldiers, just to make sure nothing funny happened. Okay, you may be saying that's an amusing little anecdote and all, but why are we talking about it? Well, we are talking about it because it is an amusing little anecdote, but also because the tug-of-war over the state capital is going to play into a lot of the instability that will be unleashed in coming years. So while it might seem like a little detour, trust me this will come back into play eventually. A more direct consequence of the new state constitution was the decision that only Altar and Arispe had the required number of residents to be considered quote-unquote major towns. Tucson and Tubac were subsequently downgraded, as it was decided that they were not large enough to have either an ayuntamiento or a municipal government, or even an alcalde. That's right. For the remainder of the Mexican period, Tucson would not have a mayor at the helm. Instead, the highest civil officer was a juez de paz, or a justice of the peace. He would be aided by a deputy and another official who acted as a treasurer-slash-town attorney. But the political fight over the new capital paled in comparison to the actual fight happening across the Pimaria Alta as Apache stepped up their rating. In January 1830, during this political squabbling, Apache bands attacked and burned buildings at Calabasas and stole a large number of livestock from the San Pedro Ranch. In a complaint that will become all too familiar in coming years, the then-governor wrote bitterly, quote, Because of the absolute lack of funds, we are unable to respond to the communications seeking help for the Presidio troops in punishing the Apaches. End quote. In response to this new wave of raiding, Francisco Ortega, one of the last Mexican mayors of Tucson, wrote to Arispe to show that Tucson citizens were ready to protect their homes. Ortega's letter contained two lists. One was the name of all able-bodied men willing to take the fight to the Apaches. This included several notables, such as former mayors, former Presidio soldiers, and prominent landowners. 38 Odom from El Pueblito and San Javier del Bac also volunteered. The second list was the names of those willing to contribute materially to fending off the menace. In something of an example of what conditions were actually like in Tucson, this list was much shorter. It contained only six names. Even worse was what they could offer. It amounted to just over three bushels of wheat, a musket, a saddle, a horse, and a mule. Tucson wasn't exactly poverty-stricken, though the going was getting a little rough. Not long after the 1831 census I mentioned last episode, Governor Escalante was asking about conditions in the area. A reply by former Presidio officer and notable resident Teodoro Ramirez noted that Tucson did manage to grow some cotton, though the Odom along the Gila grew more. The area was also good for raising sheep, though that had become more and more difficult as Apache depredations continued to rise. Hostile natives were also the reason Ramirez gave for miners not following up on known gold deposits northward near the Salt River. We also learned from an 1830 report from the caretaker of San Javier del Bac that many of the best fields were going uncultivated. The Presidio used to buy up all the surplus grain the mission could churn out, but with their financial situation, that was no longer possible. 
things were definitely worse down at Tubac, where the garrison had really no one left to provide protection. Many were off down south helping to guard against violence over the continuing dispute of placing the capital at Arispe or Hermosillo. I told you that conflict would raise its ugly head again, and not for the last time. In 1832, the commander of Tubac, José María Villaxcusa, reported that he only had three retired soldiers, one aide, and the families of the absent soldiers at the Presidio. Furthermore, only 12 civilians remained, and they were ready to pack up and abandon the place any day now. Villaxcusa also appealed to the Sonoran community of Imuras to send something, anything, to help his company, but the reply he received back was that the community had neither a horse nor a gun to lend. By far, defense was the top concern on everyone's minds these days. All around was alarming news. For example, in 1830, a group of Tucson soldiers, civilians, and native allies were out on a two-week campaign in western Apache territory. They came across a settlement along the banks of Pinal Creek, probably near modern-day Claypool and Globe, where a group of Apaches were practicing limited agriculture and had 2,000 horses grazing. The leader of the Apache Monsos with the soldiers made contact and peaceful relations were set up. However, the soldiers soon learned that this band was well-armed from having traded horses and mules to Norte Americanos in New Mexico. This was not that uncommon these days. Starting with the Comanches, but then expanding to the Navajo, Utes, and, yep, you guessed it, the Apaches, the Norte Americanos willingly gave weapons in exchange for pack animals. Animals, it should be noted, that were often stolen from the very Mexicans the rifles would be used against. The only good news on the American issue is that the trapping craze that had propelled men such as Patty to violate Mexican territory had died down by around 1833. A change in taste towards hats made of silk rather than fur caused the economic incentives to dry up. But before changing times made them obsolete, the trappers would bring some famous names through the area. The most recognizable is probably the Old West legend Kit Carson, a mountain man and army scout who would become a legend in his own time. He never lived in Arizona, but did have a home in Taos, New Mexico, and many would stop there to gain necessary knowledge for continuing west. Here you also find the name of William Old Bill Williams. The tall, red-headed man is rumored to have originally been a Methodist preacher in Missouri before essentially going native and heading for the hills. He became noted as a lone wolf with several particular quirks, including walking with a stagger that ensured he couldn't go in a straight line. He wore the stirrups of his saddle high so that his knees are said to have nearly touched his chin. This is the same Williams for which we have the Bill Williams River, Williams Mountain, and the town of Williams. You can add several other notables to this list, including trapper Pauline Weaver, who would lend his name to more than a few geographic landmarks in Arizona, probably the most notable being Weaver's Needle in the Superstitions. State historian Thomas Sheridan writes that, really, the trappers left behind depleted streams and nothing more. Their actual impact on Arizona was negligible. They didn't funnel their furs or money through Tubac or Tucson and avoided confrontation with the Mexicans. 
However, they thumb their nose at the request to present their papers to the Presidio commander at Tucson, a sign of the American indifference towards Mexican authority that will contribute toward the coming war. But just because the trappers were fizzling out, it didn't mean an end to the American presence. In October 1831, a group of 11 Americans led by David E. Jackson arrived at Tucson from Lordsburg, New Mexico. They were heading toward California and wanted guides to show them the route that Captain Romero had broken in 1823. State historian James Officer makes the pithy note that no one volunteered to lead them. The next year, 1832, a group led by Isaac J. Sparks made their way along the Gila on course for Los Angeles. Early state historian James H. McClintock notes an accidental encounter this group had with an unnamed band of raiding Amerindians that would result with 15 of the attackers being killed. McClintock writes of two other groups marching across Arizona in 1834 and 1836. The latter, a group of 22, were said to have been killed by the Apaches on the upper Gila River. It's an experience the Mexicans could certainly relate to. Of course, they were having problems of their own. In September 1831, a group of Pinal Apaches made overtures of peace toward the Apache Monsos around Tucson, despite the traditional rivalry and hostilities between the two bands. It was possible these talks were to induce the Tucson Apaches to join in revolts that were happening in Sonora and Chihuahua. We can't be entirely sure of that, but these talks ended with one of the Tucson Apaches being killed, so whatever they were discussing, it did not go well. The Tucson Apaches would strike back, killing a Pinal chief. A month later, relatives and friends of the slain chief then descended on Tucson in a mock attack to give everyone a good fright. The uprising the Pinals may have been hoping to cash in on were centered around the Presidio at Janos, which you might recall from episode 8 was the first posting for Juan Bautista de Anza the Elder more than a century ago. The problem is what we discussed at length already. There was no more money. According to one source, nearly every Apache band that had previously lived at a peaceful settlement participated in raiding and revolts throughout 1831, with most citing the lack of rations as the main reason. That's in line with Sheridan, who says that the biggest blow to peace was the official dismantling of the ration program in 1831. Just to give some idea of the scale we are talking about, he quotes a source that says nearly 2,500 Apaches across Chihuahua, Sonora, and New Mexico were receiving weekly supplies of beef, corn, sugar, and other foods. That's a lot of bellies now growing hungry. And angry. As early as 1824, hostilities had started again. Offensive maneuverings in Sonora to quell them were stymied by the fact that the army was lacking in guns, ammunition, and horses. In 1830, disaffected Apaches at Hanos petitioned for farming implements, an interpreter, and for their rations to be increased. And not only increased, but diversified. The rations at this point were now only corn, and they asked that beef be sent along as well. The state legislature granted the farming implements and the interpreter, but flatly denied increasing the rations. It could be, like I've said a hundred times now, that there was no money left. It could also be that the leaders, safe in Chihuahua City, 
did not think the Apaches were a threat. But either way, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. With the promise that no more food was coming, and with yet another wave of disease spreading out the Presidios, the Apache bands at Janos decided to bolt for the hills again. Hostilities would continue into 1832. The state of Chihuahua was hit hard and asked for neighboring Sonora to send a force of 100 Apata natives to help shore up their army because it lacked, quote, sufficient forces in order to contain the rebellion of the Indian Apaches who were at peace and every day commit more murders, end quote. Sonora would deny the request, saying they had their own Apache problems to worry about and they could not spare 100 Opata without leaving themselves at risk. Aside from the wave of violence the revolts at Hano sent rippling through the Pimaria Alta, there is another reason to mention them specifically. Possibly involved in the Hanos revolt, and certainly in the wider depredations across Chihuahua and Sonora, were an Apache warrior who originally went by the name of Fuerte, and his future son-in-law, first recorded as Chis by the Mexicans. We better know them today by the names they gained in later years, Mangas Coloradas and Cochis. Trust me when I say we will deal much more with both of them as our story goes on. Up in Tubac and Tucson, there was little that could be done to lend aid as Sonora and Chihuahua erupted in violence. Luckily, the Tucson Apaches hadn't joined in the revolt that was being seen by other bands as an opportunity to push the Mexicans out of the frontier for good. Sheridan writes that Tucson during this time was as much an Apache town as a Mexican one. An 1835 count shows 486 Apaches living in the area, slightly higher than the number of Mexicans. The Apache Monsos farmed along the Santa Cruz, either for themselves or for Mexican landlords. They were able to travel freely between Tucson and the surrounding mountains to hunt deer and bighorn sheep, gather cactus fruit, and roast agave. In short, despite living at a peace settlement, they were still able to carry on the Apache way of life. And this made all the difference. Chief Antuna of this group would remain a supporter of the Mexicans, with he and his men serving as scouts for the army. Tubac, however didn't have such allies, and needed extra help. In 1832, a militia company of 24 auxiliaries arrived from Moctezuma, Sonora. They were en route to Tucson to bolster the defenses, but had been told that Tubac needed their help much more. However, within a matter of days, seven of the men deserted the company, with the rest, in the words of their commanding officer, being so homesick and frightened that they were, quote, not fit to contribute anything, actively or passively, end quote. It's during this time that La Seccion Patriotica was formed in Sonora. Members of the group would arrive at Tubac on May 23, 1832, ready to strike out against the Apaches. Here they were met by Captain Antonio Camadoran of the Tucson Presidio, who was chasing Amerindian raiders who were fleeing toward the Santa Ritas. But his forces had run out of fresh horses and they could not find any at Tubac. So the Seccion Patriotica volunteered to head out instead. They weren't able to find the raiders, but it proved that they were ready and eager for a fight. And they would get one just a week later. 
On June 4th, Captain Joaquin Vicente Elias in La Sección Patriótica found and attacked a party of hostile Apaches in the canyon of Aravapai Creek. And unlike how most of this goes for the Mexicans, this battle would be an undisputed success. Elias reported the volunteers as having killed 71 men, captured 13 children, and recovered 216 mules and horses. Only one of the section's men had been killed, with 12 others receiving wounds. Elias is said to have returned branded livestock to the rifle owners, while the captured children were given to Mexican families to be raised. But one battle does not a victory make. The Apaches didn't slow down through the rest of 1832, kept only somewhat in check by the presence of the militia. It didn't help that down in Sonora, the Yaquis and the Opatas also started raiding again, drawing attention and manpower that way. At this point, you might ask, what could possibly make things more unstable? Well, how about political shakeups up and down the system? Because that's exactly what happened. In 1833, Mexican President Anastasio Bustamante was unseated by General Antonio López de Santa Ana. Santa Ana is a singular figure in this period of Mexican history and will serve as the country's president 11 times. That's not 11 consecutive terms, mind you, but 11 back and forth as Santa Ana falls from and then finds a way to regain power. It's a political feat that is simply astounding. Unfortunately, as fascinating as the life and times of Santa Ana are, He's only a peripheral character in our story. For now, just know that his rise to power meant a shakeup, and new elections for state and federal officials were scheduled for April 1833. In the wake of this power grab, Sonora's legislature dissolved itself in January 1833, and that's when residents of Hermosillo decided to make a power grab all of their own. Exceeding their authority, an elections committee declared the town the new capital, even installing a new governor and lieutenant governor. Arizbe, predictably, did not take this lying down. There would be plenty of bad blood between the two communities as 1833 progressed. Hermosillo would attempt to seat a new legislature. Arizbe would declare that they did not recognize the body. At one point, it appeared that a civil war was entirely likely as both sides dug in. Finally, on September 3, 1833, Manuel Maria Gandara, the man the Hermosillo legislature had declared governor, dissolved the body to end the dispute. But don't mistake Gandara for either a peaceful man or a booster of a rispe. At this point, he simply saw he didn't have enough political power to make the move to Hermosillo, so we let it go. For now. Trust me, he'll be back. All this political trouble only made the situation in the military worse. For months, the Presidial troops had gone without pay, rations, or even clothing. Presidio commanders from across the Pimaria Alta gathered at Arispe to discuss their problems and found a willing ear in the retired Ignacio Elias Gonzalez. The former commander of Tubac would actually lead this group in a small barracks revolt, which would see him replacing Sonora's military commander, 
before passing the position along to his cousin, Jose Maria Alias Gonzalez. So, yeah, 1833 turned out to be more of a roller coaster ride than anyone had expected or, for that matter, really wanted. I wish I could tell you that this was the low point and everything starts turning around here, but history doesn't really work that way. Because as 1834 dawns, we find the new justice of the peace at Tubac, Juan Bautista Elias, presiding over the trial of Jose Maria Sosa, the administrator of the mission lands at Tumacacri. Sosa was being charged with, quote, embezzlement and other offenses no less serious, end quote. Honestly, I don't have a record of the outcome for this trial, but during the proceedings, we do find out that only a handful of Amerindians still lived at Tumacacri. With no priests there either, enterprising Mexican citizens were making land and water grabs on property that technically belonged to the Amerindians. And it wasn't like things at Tubac were all that rosy either. In March 1834, a small band of Apaches living in the Chiricahua and Mule Mountains had struck and killed the captain of a small band out of Tubac. During this time, an officer wrote to Ignacio Elias Gonzalez about how the militia was being depleted, mainly due to the desertion of citizens from Sonora. Justice of the Peace Elias was constantly writing to let his superiors know of how poor a condition the community was actually in. In April, he reported that the settlers were all ready to leave because it seemed no one higher up the food chain was willing to help them. He begged the governor for a commanding officer who would be more active against the Apaches. In July, he was writing again, this time painting an even bleaker situation. There was no wall around the settlement, he wrote. Heavy rains the previous season had shifted the course of the Santa Cruz so far away that it was beyond reach in the case of Apache attack. The Presidio had only one piece of artillery and fewer than a dozen soldiers, and the few civilians still living in the area had no arms. Similar frustrations about the deteriorating conditions and lack of attention by the government led settlers up and down the Santa Cruz to appeal directly to the central government for more help in maintaining the frontier. Not that this petition will do any good. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, Mexico City was too preoccupied with governments being overthrown every five minutes. But it does show a level of frustration with how politics has been playing out in Occidente and later Sonora. With no help coming from the central government, the Sonoran State Legislature took matters into its own hands. On July 3, 1834, they authorized Governor Escalante to organize a major campaign against marauding Amerindian tribes. At the same time, word of a massive coordinated attack reached Tucson. It seems an Apache Manso woman had been captured during a raid by a rival band, she had been falsely told that her people had either joined the revolt or been wiped out. So when she was eventually released, she didn't go straight to Tucson, but wandered the countryside looking for friends and family to confirm this. During this time, she learned that her people were still alive and loyal to Tucson, but also that the Pinal and White Mountain Apaches were holed up in the Chiricahua Mountains and were planning a massive attack on both Tucson and Tubac. So now everyone is preparing for the big one. 
Tucson's Justice of the Peace wrote Escalante, promising 40 militiamen from Tucson, San Ignacio, and Tupatama for his efforts to quash the Apaches. Though this promise was conditional on them receiving munitions, which, of course, they didn't have. By the end of September, Governor Escalante is at the Elise Hacienda on Babalcomari Creek, one of those land grants we talked about last week in the San Pedro River Valley. As I also touched on last time, those land grants weren't doing so well. The decade had started out great, with eight people looking at grants that would have taken up the land between the lower San Pedro to the Gila River and then east to the current New Mexico state line. But soon the constant hostilities and raiding led to a wholesale abandonment of these ranches. Almost all of the grantees would be off their land by 1840, but the Ortiz family apparently didn't live at the Canoa Grant past the 1830s, with one daughter recording that they had moved to Tubac because natives burned their house down. We also have the testimony that Aravaca was abandoned around 1835. Just to drive home the point, the Babokumari Grant will also be abandoned around the same time, around a year after this major offensive against the Apache is being planned from the Hacienda. But back to that offensive. With Governor Escalante now in the San Pedro River Valley, he sent out a detachment of cavalry and infantry totaling 442 men on a 24-day herring mission. He planned to take the remaining forces of some 100 men, plus supplies and horses, and march to the Wilcox Playa and then to San Simon. Once settled, Escalante planned to call upon the volunteers from the Santa Cruz Valley he had been promised. But while the army was making these official movements, forces out of Tucson had taken matters into their own hands. Tucson Justice of the Peace, Juan Nepomuceno Gonzalez, led a force of 27 settlers and 56 Acamel Odom and Apache Mansos toward Pinal Apache Territory on September 16th. En route, he was joined by more than 200 more Odom warriors. With the help from his Apache scouts, Gonzalez and his band penetrated deep into the heart of Pinal Territory, going almost as far as the Salt River Canyon along US-60 north of Globe. This force would fight four different battles, where they would kill 20 Pinal men, 6 women, and 12 children. As proof of the deed, ears were taken from all the killed men. And as part of this expedition, they also recovered 87 horses and 86 cows. Gonzalez would write a glowing report of the Apache Mansos from this expedition, praising their faithfulness and loyalty to the Mexican cause. By the time Gonzalez returned to Tucson, Escalante had set out toward the Mogollon Mountains in New Mexico. The goal was to surprise the Apaches there, who were led by Tutihe, one of the leaders of the Apaches that had abandoned Hanos. Unfortunately, as they were marching along the route just south of future I-10 between Wilcox and Lordsburg, New Mexico, they were detected by the enemy. There would be no major victory for this group. Though on October 24th, in the foothills of the Mogollon Mountains, they did have one brief hard fight. During this, they managed to capture Tutihe, killed two of his men, and recovered a few horses. And really... That was it for the Great Offensive of 1834. Seriously. Escalante and his forces would withdraw shortly thereafter. Considering the Apache leader Tutehe to be such a prize, 
the governor had him taken to a respay and then publicly hung in the streets. This act, however, actually incensed some Apache leaders who had started talking about making peace. Very little had actually been achieved by the 1834 offensive, with the greatest victories coming at the hand of the Allied tribes rather than Mexican soldiers. That might seem very anticlimactic and more than a bit disappointing, but Officer makes the great point that, quote, Given the condition of Sonoran politics, though, it is a wonder that any large-scale action took place at all. End quote. I'm going to leave it there for this week, as I think you can agree it's been a busy five years for Mexican officials. But join me next week as the troublesome 1830s don't improve, and the political, military, and economic woes continue their downward spiral. And amid all the chaos caused by the Apaches, which is not going to let up, by the way, the Mexicans will have to deal with a new threat from the Odom, who will also go into revolt. To put it another way, the back half of the 1830s will be like that bit from the old camp song. Second verse, same as the first, a little bit louder, and a little bit worse. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.